Hey, what's up, bookworms? We are back with another author interview. This time today, it is the best-selling author of the Greenbone Saga and EXO, four-time Aurora Award winner, a Locust winner, a Hugo nominee, Miss Fonda Lee. How are you this evening? I'm morning, well. Good afternoon. I'm doing good. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Mike. I'm uh, very excited to do this because Greenbone Saga was something that uh, I was interested in when it first came out, and it just kind of got buried uh, when it first happened. And it seemed like everyone on booktube was talking about it except for me so i felt really late to the party and the next thing i knew a book two was out i was like dang i gotta get to that and then i was just i did the thing that i don't like to do and say oh, i'll just wait for it to be done but i was talking to another booktuber uh, jake bishop who was very very high on your series and he basically gave me a sales pitch and gave me a guarantee mike i know you love the godfather this is going to be something that i think that you like a lot and so i did read it and i did really really enjoy it read it over june july and august it was really nice being able to do that uh you know I, I know that probably i was i kept buying them as they kept coming out so i felt like okay I, i'm not going to upset an author too much by buying their book and tell them hey i'm just gonna you know wait till it's done does that bother you when, when people say i'm gonna wait till it's done before i read it does that bother you i'm of two minds on it i, I you know as an author of course yeah. I, I i want people to buy it once it's out right because oftentimes if the first book doesn't get enough support you may not yeah. get the next books in the series so uh, of course there's my author hat but as a reader i completely understand i'm also one of those readers who tends to want to wait until the series is done i know that it that it will be done mm -hmm. and that i can enjoy it all in one go so i i i completely sympathize with those who are just getting into the series now i'm glad you're you know here joining the party there's no such thing as late to the party when it comes to the um comes to books but i'm also extremely appreciative of people who are uh first to the bandwagon and make sure the book gets support so that it can actually be completed right the, the the biggest champion that you have out there i'm sure you know is petrick leo uh and petrick was really in my messages all the time why are you reading that i told you to read this so uh he said to tell you hi and uh yeah, hi, petrick. definitely a big big champion of yours and uh yes petrick again you win this round because it was very very good so i have a question that i'd like to ask and i'm going to kind of get into some of these viewer questions here uh before i do that i want to start this off by saying guys Hilo did nothing wrong, and if you if you want to fight about this, I'll offer you a clean blade right now. So I'm just going to get that off my chest, okay? I love The Godfather. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's definitely one of my favorites ever. Should I assume that you agree with this? I think that's a pretty safe assumption. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, I mean, if someone sold me on this series as it's The Godfather with magic, I think I probably would have read it a lot earlier because when I started reading, I was kind of – I guess caught off guard because I just assumed it was just, you know, more fantasy. I was expecting swords and shields and, you know, like ancient feudal Japan or something kind of was what I was expecting. So when I'm like, wait, he's like strangling him with a phone cord. I'm like, what's going on here? So it was very, very different for me than what I was expecting, but I think it was for the best way. So how would you say uh, the Godfather obviously uh, influenced you to, to, you know, to really get around the writing this? How much did it have an influence on the series? Yeah. So no big surprise. The Godfather is one of my favorite films uh, of all time. And what really hits for me with The Godfather is uh, not that it's not just that it's a gangster story. There's tons of gangster movies out there. Right. And I'm a big fan of that genre. Goodfellas, Scarface, you know, anything by Scorsese, good, uh, Untouchables, you name it. Um, but The Godfather, for me, stands head and shoulders above all of those because it's not just a story about gangsters. It's about a family. They happen to be gangsters. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're. Uh, their lifestyle um, impacts all of their interpersonal relationships and vice versa uh, is the thing that that has always just kept that uh, that piece of fiction so forefront of mind for me, because um, especially as you get from like Godfather to Godfather part two, just the mastery of kind of telling this intergenerational saga um, of, of Vito Corleone and then uh, you know him coming to America and the handoff to Michael Corleone and then his children. Um, that is, it, it's always just had a, a place in my heart. Um, so obviously, The Godfather was a big influence for me um, with this story because uh, it's a it, it's a fantasy story. It's got lots of uh, clan warfare. It's got martial arts. It's got magic rocks. But uh, at the core, for me, it's a it's a family story. Um, and obviously, there was many other influences that. Uh, came into the writing of this series uh, because I'm also a big fan of um, 
crime drama from the East. So that Hong Kong cinema tradition of the Johnny Toe films, uh, the John Wu Chow Young Fat films, um, and you know the, the wuxia genre and all like the martial arts um, cinema and fiction and those kind of martial hero fantasy stories that all came into this as well. So this was really, this was a series that is, uh, as you can tell, very heavily influenced um, by my love for The Godfather, but all these other things too, all smashed together. Yeah, yes, that's why people ask me, Mike, you ever thought about writing? I was like, no, it would just be me copying Lord of the Rings and Dune, and that's just not any fun for anybody. You know, other people are, are, are much better at hiding those things. Me, I'd just be like, hey, it's just beat for beat, just like it. But yeah, you know, when I was reading this, uh, the first book especially, I was comparing, oh, Shay kind of makes me think of like Michael, you know, kind of away from the family now coming back to the family kind of things and Hilo kind of the hothead like Sonny. I was I was loving making those comparisons. But uh, I, I tell people, though, just because you've seen The Godfather doesn't mean you know what happens in the book right. at, at, at all. So you can see those influences, but I never uh, once felt like it was being like derivative. And I think that's a that's, that's a that's a fine line to walk, I would imagine. It as is, an author, because yeah. you got those influences and you want to make sure you're not just you know telling the same story again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think every creative professional uh, steals stuff left and right. You know, that's what we do is that we get inspired by other things. And uh, what creativity is for me is taking all those inspirations and then making it something different. And, you know, you put it in the mixer and it and it comes out different just because I had certain archetypes. Um, the, you know, the the responsible eldest son, you know, the, the hothead, the like black sheep of the family. Like those are archetypes that have come up in lots of stories, including the Godfather. Um, but then what do I do with them to make them unique and fresh and and their own thing? Uh, and that's the the creative challenge. That's what makes it fun for me. Well, I think you did a great job. So let's get into the viewer questions here. And I mean, it's the ones you're going to get the most. And I, I know you probably have this on, you know, like speed dial right now to be able to do this. But uh, here, here's the big ones here. What made you become a writer and who influenced you the most in your writing career? Oh, gosh, that's why did I become a writer? It's kind of <laughs> it's like very <laughs> existential. <laughs> uh, I have always I've always been a voracious reader. Um, ever since a really young age and, and fantasy and science fiction was always my go-to just from the start. Um, Prydain and Narnia and then later Tolkien and Asimov, Bradbury, uh, McCaffrey. So that just, the, for me, science fiction and fantasy was always where I could stretch my imagination the most. So that's what I loved growing up. And uh, I was always just drawn to telling my own stories. That's what I would, um, I'd do for fun. I'd write stuff on the bus. Um, you know, I'd be writing stories during biology class. Uh, so I just always thought of it as something that, uh, that was a place of enjoyment for me, but I didn't really think of it in terms of a potential career until much later on. I went to college for something else. I had a 10 year career in business. Um, and then I reached this point where I, I guess I've had a bit of a crisis when I realized I wasn't getting any time to write anymore because life had taken over. Mm -hmm. I had a job and family and all these other obligations. And um, I realized, hey, I'm not writing anymore. And writing was something that used to bring me so much joy. So how do I get back into it? And, you know, I'm at that point was like, well, I'm not getting younger. How do I like actually take myself seriously with this hobby? If I'm going to put time into it, I want to do the, see how far I can get with it. Uh, and that's when I just, seriously started thinking about getting published, um, getting better as a writer and, uh, you know, looking for an agent, going on, on submission, trying to get my work out there. Um, so, and, and when I came back to writing, it was immediately, it was back into science fiction and fantasy from the start. Uh, and then in terms of like inspirations, I mean, obviously all these authors that I enjoyed when I was a child were huge inspirations. Um, and then I guess it's, it's so hard because it's like who inspires you as a writer is um, it's a little harder to answer when you work in the field. And so many of these current writers are your colleagues and you know them all because uh, you're like, oh, these are all like friends of mine. Um, but if I think of like who is a writer, a current uh, writer that I just really admire, both from a craft standpoint, but also from a career standpoint, uh, I'd go to Neil Gaiman. Um, and the reason for that is because uh, from a storytelling standpoint, uh, Neil Gaiman is able to make the fantastic so relatable, right? He just, he brings it down to a level where it's like, it, it, these are literal gods, you know, that he writes about. And yet they feel so grounded in kind of 
the our our world, the sort of the the, the textural minutia of our world. Um, and the other thing that I just really love, I admire about his career is that he writes everything. You know, he he's written novels, he's written um, comics, he's written scripts for. I mean, he's produced television shows, he's written uh, books for kids, um, and across all this media, all these different things that he writes, he still has a very distinctive voice. It's always a Neil Gaiman story. Um, and that's what I hope to have in my career in the long run is writing a bunch of different stuff, um, different medium. I, I love writing science fiction and fantasy. Um, I've written adult fiction. I've written YA fiction. I've written comics. Um, and hopefully, you know, at the end of it all, being able to say, I tried all these different things and they're all Fonda Lee stories. You know, that's kind of what I what I'd hope for yeah I love uh the Sandman when I read the comic in high school that completely like blew me away you know so, yeah, I'll always go to go to that one outside I've only read Stardust so I need to actually get into some more of his novels I think now you did mention a name that is a very very big one for me I love Ray Bradbury I'm reading Fahrenheit 451 for like the third time right yeah. now so uh I think this is a good way to get into this next question what are some of your favorite books of all time and I'm not going to hold you to like any ranking or anything yes. you know just off the top of your head what are some of your your go-to's yeah, favorite books of all time. Um, you know, I'm not a big rereader. Mm. So I usually read a book once and then there's always new books to read. Yeah. So I, need I don't to get back to doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't really have comfort reads that I go back to over and over again. But I do have books that were really formative for me. Um, and some of them, you know, I read, I, I, I think especially the ones I read in like my teens, early twenties were really formative. Um, and like some of them that come to mind for me were, um, Anne McCaffrey's Dragon Riders of Pern series. And that was, I, I think that one in particular, uh, had an impact on me because it blurred the line between science fiction and fantasy where it, you start off and you think, oh, dragons, it's a fantasy novel. And then you get further on the series and you're like, oh, no, wait, no, wait, it's a science fiction novel. And uh, she did something really cool with genre that um, that stuck with me and that I think is reflected in how I approach my work. Um, I want my favorite uh, series um, from early on is the robot series by Asimov. And, uh, you know, the the three laws of robotics and just the way like he set up. Um, that whole premise, I mean, that I, I remember reading that as a teenager and that was really, I think the series that got me, um, made me fall in love with science fiction. Uh, and, um, and like, I, I think like, you know, there's, there's also, um, I'm, of course, there's like the Chronicles of Prydain, there's Lord of the Rings, um, you know, those, uh, oh, uh, the never ending story mm. was one of my early favorites um so yeah i mean there's there's a there's a list but i'm i'm not much of a comfort reader i'm always looking for kind of what's new trying to stay abreast of yeah i keep saying i'm never gonna be able to read everything i want to before i die and then i'll be like hey i'm gonna read the stephen king book for the third time you know so i i, I, yeah, I yeah. that. <laughs> yeah uh so if you could describe the premise of greenbone so i get everyone as a soon to be first time reader to read your trilogy as you would kind of like an elevator pitch do you have one of those that you go to uh, well, I have described it as the Godfather with magic and kung fu. So, you know, maybe that that sort of trickled back to you at some point. Um, I've also described it as an epic urban fantasy, Asia-inspired, modern-era gangster family saga. And I never get those words out all in the same order. <laughs> I'll say that. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that pretty much sums it up. Um, but it it is, uh, I, I mean, it it is a, when it came out, you know, one of the things that we struggled with that both me and my publisher you know we had was a challenge for us was how to describe it how to how to sell it because we didn't have a lot of comps I mean, any comps really um because it is it, it it is epic fantasy but it's also urban fantasy and it's modern era so it's going to you know be it's going to have magic but also guns and cars um and it's uh it's a fantasy story but it's real it's low magic it's low fantasy in the sense that it's not giant world ending good versus evil stakes it is at the end of the day it's a story of uh, these two clans um and in particular one of the families that runs these clans and you know it's um i i think uh one of the things i'm i'm often happy to hear is that uh 
people who say they don't even normally read fantasy picked it up and enjoyed it and got into fantasy. So for people who, and I've heard this many times from readers who said, hey, my dad or my uh, my wife or my brother doesn't really read fantasy, but I gave him Greenbone Saga and they really dug it. Um, I like to think of myself as being a bit of a gateway drug. Definitely um, a gateway series, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially for people who, you know, they, maybe their they're, they're, fantasy feels like, or fantasy it conjures for them a certain idea of uh, you know, D and D campaign, um, or, or that kind of Northern European ancient history kind of milieu, um, medieval setting. Um, and I like being the the person who comes in is like, Hey, no, there's, here's, here's another way you can think of fantasy. Mm, I think, yeah, I just kind of like the only urban fantasy I've read is, is Jim Butcher, uh, Dresden files. So people are like, is that what you would classify that as? Like, I guess, I don't know. I kind of stick with you. I'm like, it's, it's the Godfather with the, with, you know, in Japan with some magic and some sword fighting. What more do you really need, guys? And they're like, yeah, it's actually Yeah, I mean sometimes these labels can be limiting, right? Because urban fantasy often people immediately think it's like our world, but with hidden uh vampires. Creatures. Yeah. Yeah, vampires <laughs> or werewolves. Um and and so that isn't what this book is either. It's secondary world. Uh so yeah, I mean I at the end of the day, I I write what I want to write and um, leave it to other people to try and label it. But right. all right, so now we're getting to some of these these writing ones here. What would you say are the fundamental components of a character that you need to know before you can write a full, complete arc for them? Oh my gosh, I don't know everything about the character when I start writing them. I get to know the character through the process of writing them, and it's really interesting because um, when you start writing the draft, the characters feel uh, pretty surface level and that you like you're writing their dialogue and a lot of the dialogue is pretty on the nose um, and you're still trying to figure out who this person is by the time you finish the draft you know that character so much better and you go back to the beginning of your manuscript and you're like hey wait no mm. that's not what he would say at all you know and that then you you just have you unearth more about this character um, by putting them in these terrible situations and then you see what happens um and that reveals more of their character and and you go through the revision process and hopefully keep polishing until you that character is you know who they're meant to be um but <clears throat> one thing that i think is really important uh just in general about characterization is knowing that a character is always multifaceted right a, a individual any one of us is uh has dimensions right like we are not we're not one person all the time we are like a little different when we're with our spouse or when we're with our kids or when we're with our colleagues right um so uh i always try to think of each character in terms of their the fact that they are multifaceted there's always more to them than just kind of their role in the story so of course they have a role in the story um but just because they have kind of one defining characteristic, whether that's like the eldest brother or, you know, the uh, the youngest sister or the clan boss or the villain, like it doesn't, that's not who they are in entirety. There's always more to them. Um, and if I can uh, tease that out, like tease out some of the complexity, I think that makes them just more interesting on the page. It makes them feel more like real people. Excellent. I'm a character first guy. So I love hearing these these kinds of things here. Uh, there's a nuclear explosion. Who has a better chance of surviving, Barrow or cockroaches? Uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Barrow's probably somehow managed to make it into the bunker. I don't know how he's done it, but he's made it into that radiation shielded bunker with the cockroaches. Hey, I like to call those and types of characters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, what, if any, were the inspirations for Hilo, Lan, and Shay? You know, I really started writing this series with just the premise. I didn't have any characters when I began. I just had the premise of the story. And I knew I wanted it to be centered around a family. And so um, I started thinking about, okay, well, who are the people in this family that I would play off of each other to create like the most interesting dynamics? So um, Hilo... Lon and Shay 
each have kind of a, a different role in that family. Um, and they started off kind of as sort of broad strokes archetypes, right? The responsible eldest brother, um, the sort of spoiled younger sister, and the like, you know, volatile kind of middle child, right? And like, these are sort of, these are very broad strokes archetypes. Um, and then I put them into like this clan and this situation and just, dug into who they were and what their history was and um what kind of relationship they have and of course some of some of the influence came from the godfather right like with with you know michael going away and then coming back uh you've got kind of the 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 hot-headed character um so but like i mixed them up right i didn't want them to be like one on one to one be able to identify oh this character is like this i just kind of took some of those ideas and some of these like family archetypes and then went from there. Yeah, I like the uh, one that I made the comparison of was Tom Hagen and Andy was the one that I can't come, come, back, come back to a lot. But I liked it. Right, right. Basically, I, one of my favorite subgenres is the coming of age story. And I feel like you do that with like four different characters, especially because of the, you know, how time kind of transpires over the course of the series. So, uh, yeah, more of those. And uh, yeah, if, they, if they, you do that in your next series, I, I would really be in support of that. I just want to get that out there. So because Andon is a character I don't feel like anybody really talks about. But I, I like I like Andy a lot. I think Andy has a pretty strong fan base. Does he? OK. I mean, just all these questions are all about, you know, those three. No one's no one's asking me anything about Andy. I'm like, Come on, you guys. All right. So. There is a major character death in book one. I'm not going to say who or what. Uh, what this person wants to know is, one, was that always the plan? And two, why? <laughs> I haven't forgiven myself for it either, in case it makes them feel any better. Uh, I knew from the start. It, it was planned right from the beginning. I knew that that would be kind of this cataclysmic moment that affected the entire rest of the series. Uh, so I, I, from the beginning, knew uh, the fate of this character. And that made writing the character challenging um, because I think what is super tragic about a character death is when you feel like the arc was cut short, right? Like there's, there's those deaths that happen when that feel like the natural conclusion of that character's narrative arc. What's really tragic, I mean, in both, in in real life as well as in fiction is when this character had so much potential there was so much more they could have done they had plans they they could have succeeded you saw how you know, like you can imagine what would have happened if this hadn't if this tragedy hadn't occurred um so that was the effect that i was going for um and my very first draft i wrote it and i showed it to some early readers and they said um well that death was shocking but it wasn't sad enough and I went back and made sure that it was sad enough because I knew I, I needed in order for it to land, it had to really um, you had to really be invested in that character and believe that they had a path forward. Um, and the other characters had to really feel that loss and for it to change absolutely everything. Mm. Yeah, it made me think of uh, it by Stephen King in case anyone hasn't read that. I won't say the character name. But he spends like 50 pages developing this character. And then at the end of that chapter, they commit suicide. And I'm like, oh, my God, why did you just build up so much for this character to do that? So that's what, kind of what made me think of with this character. It's like, oh, well, she set up all this stuff. and But I mean, I guess that's how life works. We don't get to finish everything, you know, sometimes before we go. You know, so that's 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 just life. So, yeah. Uh, besides The Godfather, what other books or series were influential in writing the series? I think you kind of already answered that, didn't you? So. But if you had anything else, it, movies or, I don't know, I guess you kind of already touched on them. So that's my fault. I already asked that question. Never mind. No worries. I mean, I'm going to say, I think actually one uh, one film that had a lot of influence, not just on this work, but on my writing in general, uh, was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Ah, yes, yes. So that came out, I, I mean, I can't, I can't even remember now. It was a long 2000, time ago. 2000, because that was when I first learned about Michelle Yeoh and fell in love. Yeah. Yes, right. So, you know, I was younger then, uh, but I had not uh, re really experienced that martial arts wuxia genre until Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon hit the screen. And I was just enamored. Mm -hmm. And my dad was like, oh, you you like that? Well, here's like this, there's an entire genre, yeah. you know? And and so then I just, I, you know, went down the rat hole of, of exploring this genre. And then there was like, you know, there was so much else, Hero and 
Curse of the Golden Flower and House of Flying Daggers and, you know, so much of it. Um, but Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was, um, was, it was, it's kind of up there with the matrix for me in terms of like the action and like, it was, it was, they were action movies, but action that I, in a way that I hadn't seen before. And they didn't sacrifice anything in terms of kind of story and sort of deeper themes. Um, even though there was like tons of sword fighting and cool stuff going on on screen. So, um, so obviously that it had an influence on, on what I write. And, oh, that's great. Um, I, like I, the action I, scenes in, in. Actually, I saw uh, what everything everywhere all at once had Michelle Yeoh in it. And my, my wife was like, I never knew you were such a big Michelle Yeoh fan. I was like, you have, well, it's ever since crouching tiger. And she's like, I've never seen it. Like, guess what we're doing tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> I had a hard time getting used to the low gravity fighting, but I was like, I, I don't know. I love this. I'm, all right, so I know you love this question. Do you have any other series in the works? And if so, can we assume it will remain in the urban fantasy slash fantasy genre? I I do have other stuff in the works, and you cannot assume that it will remain in the urban fantasy genre. Um, I am working on a science fiction nice. project right now, so that will probably be my next one. Uh, I do have another fantasy series, um, but that will probably... I have I have stories that I want to write, probably like booked out for the next ten years. Well, it's just a matter of like stag, like figuring out when exactly I'm going to write them all. Uh, but a science fiction project, definitely another fantasy series that I want to do. Um, and then I've got other stuff that I want to work on too. I want to write a horror novel at one point. So, um, so yeah, lots of other projects uh, that I can't talk about yet. However, uh, and some of them will be fantasy, but some of them will not. Well, this is from me here. It, it, would you be the type of writer that's uh, like a Michael J. Sullivan or a Joe Abercrombie where he writes the entire trilogy and then he moves on to the next thing? Or would you be like the Brandon Sanderson who's, I'm going to write a book from this series, then a book from this series, then a book from this series, and then kind of just like rotate them around? Would you ever think right, about right. that? Uh, you know, I think I'm probably going to be more of the former because once I get into a series and a story idea, I tend to stay there for a little while. Uh, the Greenbone Saga took up, you know, so, something like seven years. Uh, and that was my primary project while I was working on it. There was other stuff. I had another um, book that came out, I think between Jade City and Jade War. There were short stories. But um, but I, I really like a series that end. So like for me, it's, it's important to me that I like, I plan it out and I know where it's going and then I get there um, before I, I dive into the next thing. Um, so there's been all these projects that I've backburnered because I was busy working on the Greenbone Saga and now I've got to, now I can actually work on them. Mm. All right. Well, Hey, at least the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the tank isn't dry, so to speak. You've got lots of ideas there. So that's good. That's the, that's the first part, right? Having the idea. So. Is that thing so? Uh, this is about your magic system here. I think the magic is pretty unique in that it intersects innate ability with something that is a commodity. I'd like to know how you thought of that and how you decided to balance the use of magic in the series with the character, clan, and family stuff. Yeah. So one of the things that I really love is when um, magic has economic implications. And the idea of uh, Jade being this finite resource that is also um, valuable economically to the nation. Uh, it just, that was just an area that I, I was really excited about exploring. Um, and I could also use it as a stand-in for like many things in our own world, you know, whether that be drugs or, you know, weapons or uh, money. And um, that uh, creates all these cool narrative constraints too in terms of um you know the the inequitable distribution of this magic because if magic is limited and it's valuable not everyone's going to have it and that brings up all sorts of questions as to who gets it who doesn't um how does it get distributed uh who deserves it um who wants it people like it, it brings in characters like barrow who desperately want it but don't have the means or the ability to get it uh so um, that's just something that I, I have always, uh, I, I coming from a business background and, you know, economics, um, the idea of magic having kind of all these real world implications, uh, is really appealing. And then also as a martial artist, I wanted the magic to feel 
limited in the sense that uh, it doesn't just make you invincible. Um, and like one of the things that has that often frustrates me uh, in in uh, in fantasy fiction or just any fiction is when like martial arts is depicted as this thing where it's like oh this is someone who has like some prodigious ability or some magic and they train with the master for like a month and then like kaboom they're like immediately better yeah. but like you know personally speaking i know from experience that doesn't happen like it, it takes so long to become even like rudimentarily good at like the basics so um i wanted this uh the, the magic abilities that are conferred in this world to come only through uh a lot of effort um, and you have to be, you know, exposed at a young age, you have to go to these training academies, you have to uh, work hard to build your tolerance to this jade and be able to use it, and for there to be consequences if you overdo it, right, uh, and you wear too much. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I actually find there's just so many cool things that you can, um, you can do with uh, magic when you, when you limit it and you make it feel kind of grounded um, and real. And then, of course, because there is this world where there is this magic substance that implied all sorts of things about like the history of this place, um, like the development of its religion and, um, you know, how society was organized so that, uh, you know, the, the warriors who could use it kind of create had ended up being a social caste of their own. And all the sayings, all the idioms, like the way people talk about it. Uh, you know, the green being lucky, um, all the like little rituals that they have in their society because this thing exists just unfolds all these world building possibilities. And I'm a world building junkie. So I'm always, I'm always, always excited to kind of make it dive under the surface of like the mat, like you've got your magic, but then how does that ripple out and affect all the other stuff in that world and in the story? Well, I can say as someone who is a finance major and works in finance, I said, she's taken some economic market growth uh, behavior classes before. I can tell reading some of these, these passages. You these had to put movies. it to use somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, the structure of the story in Jade's legacy, the way it kind of jumps around the frequent time type of stuff, is that something you had planned or is that something that just came along uh, as you were writing the series? Did you always plan to kind of fly through the years like that? Yeah, it, it was definitely planned. So when I started off writing uh, Jade City, um, I didn't know, first of all, whether it would sell. And then second of all, how many books it was going to be. So once I knew it was going to be a trilogy and my publisher had agreed for it to be a trilogy, um, my goal was for this narrative to expand through kind of a deliberate scaffold. So Jade City is the story that is um, about you know two clans and their conflict on this one island. And then my uh, intent with Jade War was to take that conflict and expand it internationally. So you get to see a lot more of the world. You see all these other countries. Um, there's a lot more global players that are involved. And then uh, with Jade Legacy to uh, take that story and turn it in, and make it an intergenerational one. So you see it expanding across time. So it was kind of like drawing a 3D cube you know, with Jade City being kind of one axis and then Jade War being another axis and then Jade uh, Legacy being the third axis. So um, each book in that trilogy is meant to have a bit of a different flavor. Um, and the challenge was to like, okay, make this a cohesive, one cohesive story, but for each of the three books to be a little bit different in tone. So I think if you like the sort of tighter, fast-paced clan warfare story, uh, you like Jade City the most. If you like international, like world, like if you like big world building, international intrigue, you like Jade War the most. And if you're here for the family drama and the intergenerational story, you like Jade Legacy the most. Um, and that's borne out. And I think I've, I've, it's been interesting. I've found um, that readers are pretty evenly split as to which of the three books they like the most. Oh, well, being the Godfather guy, obviously the first one was my favorite, but I'm also, like I said, such a big character guy. I, the, the third one really had a lot of stuff that I liked about it. But uh, I was going to actually bring that up is that it seems like a lot of uh, modern fantasy trilogies, it does feel like one story just kind of split into three parts. Mm -hmm. I do feel like these do feel very, very different. They're very distinct. And uh, that's 
It's actually quite impressive that you're able to pull that off. But I do have a non-Greenbone question for you. Will we ever see a book three in the EXO series? Oh, gosh. Uh, probably not, because it was uh, planned and sold as a duology. And now I'm like, now so many years past that duology that uh, that I doubt I'll be able to go back and write the third one. I do get that question once in a while, um, because I, I really am fond of that of that duology. Um, but too many books, not enough time. Yeah, yeah, I get that. All right, so um, <clears throat> if I don't ask about the TV stuff, people are going to jump all over me here. So, I mean, personally, I was saddened to hear about the adaptation uh, with Peacock getting canceled. Is there any interest from other parties that you can speak on? And there's probably a lot of things you're usually not allowed to speak on these things. But is there Yeah, and I can't give specifics. I can say there is other interest. There is other interest. And we are in conversations. It's a weird time for TV adaptations. Uh, it the the streaming landscape is um kind of a, a hunger game situation right now because uh you know we we're we're in the situation where um everyone jumped into the streaming wars and uh Netflix is is canceling stuff and HBO Max is merged with Discovery and they're canceling everything and um so there's it's it's kind of a rough time um in the streaming service world uh, so we're 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 definitely investigating the different avenues and uh, fingers crossed. When I can share stuff, I certainly will. Okay, I just hope it's not like the CW or something because this needs this needs to be R rated, you guys. Okay, that's right. <laughs> uh, no, so dream casting, you're allowed to cast anyone as any character. If you you could do that, what would be a dream casting for any character in your story? Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, at one point I did know, and I think I put it up at various times in different AMAs on Reddit and stuff. But now I've seen so many different fan casts yeah. mm -hmm. that it's completely muddled. You know why? Because people have, have put together great fan casts. So I don't feel like I have a dream casting anymore. But I will encourage you to go onto the internet and look up some of the fan casts because there's some pretty good ones out there. Okay, well, I apologize for this question in advance, but I did get it at least a dozen times, so I feel like I have to ask it. Uh, do you read any Harlequin romance or erotica because your sex scenes are really spicy? <laughs> I do not. I do not. Uh, I'm, I, uh, I'll take that as a compliment. I'm very flattered to, to get a shout-out for the spiciness of my sex scenes. Um, uh, no, I treat writing sex scenes a lot like the way I treat writing action scenes. Uh, I think there's a lot of overlap in the skill that's required to write an action scene and write a sex scene uh, because they are both uh, highly physical confrontations between two emotional parties. So, um, you know, there's they're sort of similar principles uh, in writing them both, like clarity, you know, knowing where all the body parts are, mm -hmm. um, not getting too overly flowery with language but making sure everything is like clear and the emotional stakes are well communicated on the page and that there's repercussions out of whatever happens so um so no but i i the way i view it is um you know i don't fade to black when there's going to be a a fight scene so i don't fade to black when there's gonna be a sex scene either just put them put them both on the page I'll say there was one in jade war my wife and i were on a cruise and i was reading one where we were on that one and i was just like yeah i'm gonna read some because she reads a lot of harlequin romance novels and i actually like read out to her like she's like that's actually pretty good like you can go ahead and add this to my add this to my kindle <laughs> so, yeah, she was impressed okay so oh, i'm glad to hear that where did the jade concept come from i really do like the addiction aspect of it. it's my favorite part of the magic system so the Jade concept came uh, somewhat out of a sense of wish fulfillment because, um, like I said, I'd watched all these martial arts movies like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I was like, you know, I've trained for a long time and I cannot run up brick walls. That is just false advertising. I'm very, very disappointed. Uh, I cannot do chi blasts. So I obviously the fantasy writer in me um, thought, okay, well, there has to be uh, X factor here. There has to be some magic reason why these martial artists can do all this stuff. And um, uh, Jade, you know, I mean, fan fantasy 
element or minerals and weapons and crystals are like nothing new, right? There's tons of them in fantasy fiction. Uh, but in Eastern tradition, um, jade was always considered the most valuable substance, like more valuable than diamonds or gold. Jade was considered like like a connection between earth and heaven um, and had a lot of spiritual significance, obviously a lot of uh, like economic significance. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just make jade literally magic. Uh, and it went from there. Yeah. I think I was impressed. It almost was like, almost like oil or something like a valuable resource or anything. I, I, that was, that was, that was like a really nice uh, twist, but I, I also, yeah, like the addiction part of it too. And the people that can, you know, have ways to use it when they didn't really have the natural gifts for it and stuff. It's really, really neat. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you didn't kind of go overboard with it. Cause one thing I, I say is myself personally, I don't, I'm not crazy about hard magic systems. I think there's just when the magic's a character. It, it's neat. Like Brandon Sanderson's great at it. He's great at it. But I was like, when I have to look at like a cheat sheet to understand what your magic's doing right now, <laughs> I don't know personally if that's just me. I, I love low magic systems, so I think it's, it's great. So I do have a, a writer question here from a from an aspiring author. Uh, I'm always interested in a writer's craft. Do you set a schedule and treat it like a nine to five job? Do you have a set routine or you just kind of write when ins uh, inspiration strikes? And do you revise constantly or write an entire draft and then revise? Oh, I wish I had the answer to any of those questions mm -hmm. uh, because I don't have... I don't have a set routine. I've written, what is it now? I've seven books. Um, and I feel like I'm, I still feel like I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants with everyone. Everyone is a little bit different and kind of demands a little different process. Um, but I, I do treat it like a job insofar as um, I have certain deadlines that I set either, well, either that my publisher sets or that I set for myself. So in order for me to, uh, write books on anything resembling a, uh, a productive schedule, I have to say things like, I'm going to finish this chapter this week, or I'm going to have a first draft done by Christmas. Um, and then I'll work backwards from that and I'll figure out, okay, well, what does that mean in terms of my schedule? And, oh, I have to take, make sure I block off this week entirely because I'm traveling or I'm, you know, going to a con or what have you. So um, that then dictates kind of how much I've got to make sure I write each day, but I am not a hard and fast, uh, like word count person. Um, and I also don't write every day. There's writers, there's advice you'll hear out there, write every day or write this many words per day or fast first draft. Um, and I don't really ascribe to any of them. Um, I think you kind of have to figure out what works for you. Um, I'm not a super fast writer. I usually write, um, between like one and 2000 words a day. Uh, when I'm drafting, uh, and I tend to be a slow first drafter, but then a fast reviser. Uh, and I don't, I will, I will sometimes revise as I go. Uh, not every day, but sometimes I will write a certain amount and realize, oh, this isn't working, or like this has kind of gone off the rails a little bit, and I'll backtrack and I'll figure out where I need to pick up the thread and do some revision to get back to where I need to go. Yeah, in Stephen King's uh, autobiography on writing, he said that when he's in first draft mode, he just tells himself, write six pages per day. Do you think that's psychotic? Uh, that that sounds psychotic to me. I mean, I don't know how many pages. Let's see how many pages. Uh, well, books so, average about 600, 700 pages. Yeah, I mean, like each page is like maybe 250, 300 words. So if he's writing like a couple thousand words a day, that's like, that's doable. I mean, that's that's pretty that's very productive. Stephen King is a very productive writer. Uh, I, I'd like okay. to get productive. as I've got a whole entire bookcase of all the stuff. Yeah. Uh, I've wondered more about the past and the mountain clan. Any plans on po possibility of a, making a prequel? Let me kind of wrap this into one here. Do you have any plans of visiting this universe again outside of Jade Setter, which I haven't got to yet, but I do have it on my Kindle. Uh, so that, so Jade Setter came out. That was, that was a really fun way for me to do another foray into this world um, and in a standalone uh, manner that could be either enjoyed before you read the series or after you read the series. Um, there is a few, there's a short story collection that's also coming out from Subterranean Press next summer. Nice. And then that's it. So I don't have plans to revisit the world uh, at this point. So I've got too many other projects. Too many I've got lots of ideas uh, for prequels for you, like uh, the events of the so from, from the mountain point of view is one that I get a lot that people want. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Stuff. And and I I, I like <laughs> to imagine the thing is like I the way I wrote the Mountain Clan, I like to think that I 
I wrote them in a way that you could tell this entire story from the mountain clan's point of view and be equally sympathetic to them. Um, and, you know, I've, there's so much backstory there with the previous generation and the many nations war. Um, I had a lot of fun creating all the little historical interludes that went into the series. So the way that it's structurally um, set up is that there's these little interludes in Jade City that are kind of ancient myth. And then the interludes in Jade War are like ancient history. Um, so there's mention of like the Warring Sisters era, the Three Crowns era, and like things that led up um, through the history of KCON. And then the interludes in Jade Legacy are uh, more recent history. So the previous generation of uh, of like the Many Nations War and Tal Sen and, and um, Iugantin and like the predecessors. So the interludes end up catching up. Uh, the interludes that happen throughout the series end up catching up back to the beginning of Jade City. Uh, so there's all this stuff that I created, these little like interludes um, that I can imagine like blowing up into big stories. But the reality is as a writer that like you could just continue to keep playing in the sandbox, same sandbox over and over and again <laughs> to diminishing returns because, yeah. you know. Yeah, all those other um, ideas, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, personally, I, I I was so intrigued by Eight Mata. I would love to see more stuff on her. So yeah, so you know, if you're ever bored and you decide, hey, here's a short story, you know, I'll, I'll give you my email. Uh, so I'm in awe of how you write action sequences. They never feel too long, and every word feels purposeful. My question is, how do you approach those scenes, and whether or not you find action harder to write than the political discussions within the series? Hmm. Uh, I find action easier to write, um, and maybe it is because. Uh, that I just enjoy them or I have some background in martial arts and I'm action movie fan that I, I treat them kind of like candy. Uh, I, when I know there's an action scene coming up, I'm like, Oh, all right, I can get through this heavy political chapter. Um, because I know there's, there's going to be some, Past Every there. time someone says, I offer you a clean blade, I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I say that around the house now. My wife's like, what are you even talking about? I was like, <laughs> well, what's what's the most uh, clean blade worthy thing that has happened to you that you've, you've had to offer a clean blade? Uh, well, my kids didn't, you know, clean the, clear the table after they finished eating, you know. No, that's pretty much it. That's 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 what's yeah. like about young kids. Uh, I'd love to know what kind of research you put into creating the culture and history of Jean Lu. Hmm. Uh, so when I created John Loon, I wanted it to feel very recognizable to our own world, um, but also completely like its own place. And that was a tricky balancing act because I wanted to um, clearly signal that it was a modern day Asian metropolis. And so as a result, I took a lot of inspiration from cities like uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taipei, Tokyo. I like printed out maps of those cities and studied them. Um, I looked at old photographs uh, of those cities um, and like, read, you know, I, I kind of dug into research um, also just about like the history of a lot of these places. Uh, you know, the, for example, um, the, the American presence in Okinawa informed like Yuan Naval Base um, in, uh, in KCON. Um, but also, this is a fictional world. And so I didn't want anyone to be like, oh, well, this is just clearly fake Hong Kong or, you know, fake Tokyo or whatever. So I, I was very deliberate about making sure that, like, I looked at these other cities for inspiration, but that I didn't copy them. Um, and that John Loon still felt like its own place. And and I also took other other little snippets of inspiration here and there. So like the subway system um, in John Loon, for example, is the subway system of Toronto because I lived there for many years and became very familiar with the subway system. Uh, so that's, that's how that happened. Um, but I, you know, I wanted to kind of evoke uh, all the sort of textural details that um, you would be like, Oh yeah. When, you know, that that reminds me of a place in real life, but it's also completely different uh, because my, you know, the way that it's run with and the jade and the clans um, and making sure that I was never too specific with like the words that I used um, and created my own cars and restaurants and city districts and names for stuff. Hopefully give John Loon the sense of specificity 
Um, and also like it, it, this feeling that it's real. Like I just wanted people to feel like, hey, I can get on a plane. I can go to John Loon. I can walk into the Twice Lucky. You can order some crispy squid yeah, balls. You might, you might walk into Barrow, so I would recommend that. <laughs> uh, so a couple of writer questions here to end this. Uh, how hard was it for you to get published? Do you have any, uh, any stories about like the mountain of rejection letters or anything like that? So my publication journey was pretty uh, sort of steady and straightforward huh. in the sense that I wrote a novel um, that I queried and that didn't sell. Then I wrote another novel um, and got an agent and sold that to a relatively small press for a relatively small advance. And then I wrote another novel and then I got a bigger advance for two books. Um, and then I wrote Jade City and uh, and that became this three book, uh, you know, series that has probably, I would say has been my, my most well-known and mm -hmm. most popular work so far. So uh, it, it has, it's definitely had, I mean, it, any writer has their war stories, uh, the, the queer, being in the query trenches and trying to get published. And there's just, you never know how long it'll take. Um, I know writers who just hit it out of the gate and sold like their first work, uh, the, the first book that they wrote. I know others that wrote 10 books before their first one got published. And then some of their backlist, the ones that they had trunked ended up being published later. Um, yeah, you just, you don't know. It is it is uh, in many ways a crapshoot and there's a huge amount of luck. So um, Jade City actually was very uh, much a case of um, finding the right editor at the right house at the right time um, because I had finished the manuscript. I had sent it to my editor and I mean, sent it to my agent and my editor actually tweeted out a like hashtag manuscript wish list tweet um, asking for a, a Game of Thrones esque uh, fantasy, but set in like 1930s Asia with like gang families and magic. Okay. And that just absolutely out of the blue, something that fit the description of what I just finished writing. Um, and so we sent it to her and the rest is history. So there's a lot of luck involved. Um, and there's, there's absolutely a ton of rejection. You get used to rejection, um, as, as a writer, because, uh, in it's, it, it's not, um, you know, it's not you, it's not personal. It's often okay. like finding the right match, right. It's in a way it's like, I don't know, fi finding the right editor for your work in the right house. It's almost like dating. Like you got to find like the person who's got the same vision for this work uh, as you do. Uh, we make the joke, uh, us lowly reviewers, you know, these independent reviewers, as we like to call ourselves, uh, about how every single blurb these days say it's Game of Thrones meets blank or whatever. So, I mean, it sounds like publishers are looking for this, right? I mean, they're saying, hey, give me a Game of Thrones meets blank. Would you say that that's accurate? So uh, comps are a thing for sure. And they are a double-edged sword because they're absolutely used by both publishers and by writers um, as a shorthand, because it's it's very hard to explain your book in an elevator pitch. Right? We get asked to do it over and over again. So it is sometimes convenient to be able to like pull something that is like snappy and quick and this meets this. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they get so overused. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this too, right? Where it's like, oh gosh, this is yet another book that's being comped to Game of Thrones. Like, come yeah. on, right? Um, and and especially when something gets big and popular like Game of Thrones, um, you'll just see comp after comp being, uh, you know, using the same um, the same touch point. And, uh, and so I get it. I know why they're used, but... Um, but they have their downsides and they may also shut people off from taking a chance on stuff. Uh, because like, for example, um, you, you mentioned that you'd heard the Godfather, I mean, the Jade city described as the Godfather with magic, but there's plenty of people who don't enjoy crime drama fiction or who never watched the Godfather or who could care less about Francis Ford Coppola's 
masterpiece. I mean, I don't call those people, but you're correct. They do exist. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, those people may be turned off of it and not give it a chance. Yeah. Um, and lots of people have said, hey, I didn't pick up the book initially because I heard it was like a gangster story. I'm not really into gangs. Um, but but it's not, you know, it's like the, the, this isn't sort of a story about criminals. It is a fantasy story about these clans. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're useful, but I always try to go beyond them too. And like, I always appreciate when, when reviewers do that, when they say, Hey, I've heard this pitch does this, but I'm going to take the time to go deeper into it and tell you more about like why you should read it. Um, and hopefully, you know, that, I mean, that's why word of mouth is, is just so important is because it conveys much more than whatever little blurb, you know, someone can give you in, in a minute or two. Absolutely. Uh, one last uh, question from an, aspiring writer how do you work on your writing craft as someone who is not from a literature background do you think just reading and writing is enough to improve your skills to a publishable level uh no um but i i will caveat this and say you don't need a formal education so if you are out there and you're an aspiring writer and you think oh gosh i don't have an mfa um don't let that hold you back uh, i certainly did not have any formal education um in creative writing and Many, many successful authors do not. Um, can you go out and get uh, education, create it yourself? Absolutely. There's writing workshops, there's conferences, there's classes. Uh, you know, there's there's so many ways to educate yourself and improve your craft. Um, but you have to, you do have to go beyond just reading a lot and writing a lot. Like absolutely read a lot, absolutely write a lot. Um, but you also need feedback. Um, that's really, really crucial is you need other people to read your work and respond to it. Um, and so that means finding other writers, um, potentially a critique group or like submitting your work uh, and starting to get rejected. And you realize and then you, then you get if you start getting personalized rejections saying, hey, like, I really like this, but you didn't nail the ending. You know, that's important feedback for you. Um, so that's the advice I would give is that, uh, no, you don't need a formal education, but you do need to find ways to educate yourself and to get uh, outside opinions on your work. Great. Great. Yeah. See me. I'm like, yeah, all this rejection sounds like a lot. So that's easy to see why I never became a writer, but now these makes great points. Uh, I mean, I think if you have like a built-in alpha reader at home, if you know, like your spouse or something, I think that's probably a great, great measuring stick or your kids, because if they're like my kids, they have no problem telling you the, the truth, no matter how much it hurts. So, yeah, it's yeah, sometimes it can be really, uh, it depends because I, I know writers who um, have uh, spouses or significant others who um, give them really like in-depth actual uh, like craft related feedback, but it can also be really great to just have a cheerleader, you know, somebody who will read your stuff and say like, no, I like this. Keep going. You know, someone who will motivate you. So that can be an important. Very important. As well. uh, before I let you go, you mentioned something earlier about horror. I wasn't sure that you were into horror. So now you're saying that you are. I do this thing in October called spooky season where it's just everything is like a horror theme because horror is kind of a niche thing on, 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 on the book tube here. But uh, I, I love it. I love horror. Uh, I think just growing up as a Stephen King reader, I just became really attached to horror. So. If you said that uh, you had like some horror influences, uh, books maybe that you that really kind of left a lasting impression, can you can can you think of anything? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't say I have any like ones that immediate like inf have influenced me specifically in my work yet. Um, but I have a I I have a couple of of uh, recommendations sure. um, for I actually one. So uh, one of them that I read recently that I really enjoyed was A Head Full of Ghosts uh, by Paul Tremblay. Uh, so if you haven't read that, I'll, I'll add that one to your, to your TBR. Um, and then one that is, I don't know if I would call, it's, it's, it's literary horror, but I, I think of it as a horror novel. Um, and it's, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Uh, um, okay. and I get I that recommended a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it was, I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but mm -hmm. yeah, both of those. 
Yeah, I've been trying to find some good modern horror author because I realized all I was doing was just like reading like Stephen King or Clive Barker, just stuff that was like really old. And I was like, I need to get some more modern horror authors. So I'm kind of trying to dig into that a little bit this year. So appreciate the recommendations. I that's the you know the the list that just kind of gets longer. <laughs> it's almost as long as Jay Legacy, my list of books that I that I you know I noticed they'd get bigger. They got they got bigger each book. Was that was that planned or you know? Bigger. Yeah. Uh I mean <laughs> I I think just by the nature of like the story yeah. expanding, um, they, they did get bigger. Hey, I'm, so, I'm proud of you though. Cause a lot of authors will be like, you know what, this is getting too big. I'm just gonna go ahead and make this four books now. You know, that's that. that yeah, like no, I was very determined to not do that. Avoid that. And then after I Jade legacy, I was like, okay, I'm going short again. So I did Jade setter, which is a very trim yeah. little under 40,000 word novella. Yeah, just say something you just kind of wrote on a notepad one day. Right. Uh, I wish it was that easy. I I remember thinking, oh, novellas can be just be a breeze. What is this like eight chapters? <laughs> no, you have to tell a whole story in that time, so it's harder than it than it seems at first glance. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. A uh, very very fun conversation for me. I, I hope it hasn't been miserable for you. I, I'm very excited to see what you do next. Uh, and night, you told me that it is something science fiction related. Uh, I, I, I'll just say I, I prefer space opera. So I hope maybe it's something like that. So hmm, Well, I wouldn't, I, it's not, I wouldn't describe it as space opera, but definitely a space opera uh, elements hmm. vibe to it. Well, you're an Asimov fan. So, uh, so I, I, I believe in you. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, like I said, I, I look forward to, to whatever comes next. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Absolutely.